Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Mainstream readings of numbers have tended to see the book as a haphazard junkyard of material that connects Genesis through Leviticus with Deuteronomy and Joshua, and this composed then at a late stage in the history of ancient Israel. By contrast, Pitkanen reads numbers as part of a wider work of Genesis through Joshua as a carefully crafted programmatic settler colonial document for a new society in Canaanite highlands in the late 2nd millennium BCE a document that seeks to replace pre-existing indigenous societies. On today's show, we speak with Pekka Pitkanen about his new approach to numbers and his recent book, A Commentary on Numbers, Narrative, Ritual, and Colonialism. That's put out by Rutledge in 2017. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Dr. Pekka Pitkanen is a senior lecturer in the School of Liberal and Performing Arts at the University of Gloucestershire in the U.K., He holds a Ph.D. in Old Testament Studies from the University of Gloucestershire. He's the author of Central Sanctuary and Centralization of Worship in Ancient Israel, put out in 2003, and a commentary on the book of Joshua in 2010. His main area of specialization is the study of the sacred texts of Christianity, the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, in the context of the ancient world and from a number of perspectives, including archaeology, sociology, and anthropology. Pekka, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So tell us about yourself, Pekka, and how you came to write on numbers. Um, okay. Well, I I am a um, person whose background is in Finland. Uh, I That's where I grew up, and uh, I was destined uh, to a career in sort of more like science and engineering, and I did studies in uh, computer science studying uh, uh, in an applied physics uh, program. Uh, uh, but then uh, after I completed my studies, I was interested in uh, working abroad and I ended up um, working in uh, South Korea. It's a kind of long story how that all happened. Uh, and there I got into theological studies. Um, I, I had always an interest in religion. Uh, and then uh, I did a uh, Master's of Divinity uh, degree uh, in Korea. Uh, and uh, I had an interest for more. I wanted to study uh, the Old Testament. It somehow interested me. And uh, uh, I had an offer to um, do a doctoral program with uh, Professor Gordon Wenham uh, in Cheltenham in, in UK. And uh, did three years there and uh, completed a PhD. And that was published. And then I uh, later on uh, published a book on uh, Joshua in the IVP uh, Apollos series. And then uh, the third book uh, uh, that I published uh, is just the, the, the one we have now, uh, a book on numbers. And uh, basically, my interest sort of in the Old Testament uh, sort of sprung from um, a, a, a sort of a variety of uh, sources. But uh, one of the, the, the areas where I really developed an interest was... Um, the Pentateuch and early history of Israel, and that's what I've been working on uh, uh, since I since I've really been uh, uh, doing my doctoral studies. The really the interest sprung in many ways from me perceiving that uh, I found academic uh, explanations about the Pentateuch and early history of Israel rather unsatisfactory from my own perspective, uh, and uh, that kind of drove my. Um, <clears throat> My research and interest in in research and uh, and really that's what I've been doing for the last twenty years. And this third book is a uh, kind of like a crystallization of a lot of my uh, uh, views and efforts uh, uh, on the um, uh, on the subject area. Really, what are some of the challenges of interpreting a book like Numbers? First, in terms of content, and then in terms of the history of scholarship. Yes, I think um, overall the book is is or provides a very interesting uh, puzzle, uh, and uh, really the question is about 
how one can make sense of the materials and is numbers really a book on its own or is it part of, of a wider uh, entity as well? Uh, I would say the latter, latter question is probably not immediately obvious when one reads uh, the book, but uh, it, uh, any considerations quite quickly lead one into thinking of such things. Um, so, so the question is, how can make one sense of uh, how how can one make sense of the materials and why was the book written? That's really those are two sort of key key issues to think about when one uh, looks at the book. And really, then you can ask the kind of questions of uh, who wrote it and when uh, as well. And if one thinks of the sort of the context of this interview, I mean, what would I say to anybody who um, might? Um, hear the interview and be interested in the book and would like to try and um, and read it. Uh, I myself think that it simply becomes quite fascinating when one starts to look at in detail, uh, uh, that is, starts to look at the book in detail. And you really need to do a, a, make a little bit of an effort to do that. But in another sense, I don't think there is a huge effort that's involved in um, in uh, in trying to interpret, probably the best way to approach is to sort of start to look at the book, start reading it, and uh, take a nice commentary and um, start sort of making sense uh, of what's what's in there and how it all relates. And uh, hopefully, the commentary that I have written actually uh, would help in that. Um, uh, I mean, I have the way I have written it is that. In one sense, I have written it um, as a quite a simple and short piece of work uh, in that uh, I'm hoping that most anybody who has an interest in the in, in the book would be able to kind of access it. So, so accessibility really is, is something that I've, I've been I've had in mind and um, hopefully they might be able to dig in and uh, and delve into the subject and start looking at. Uh, both the biblical book of numbers and the commentary and uh, and through that engage um, uh, with the materials at another level however i have also um, points there uh, that really a are aimed at the highest levels of scholarship as well in terms of particularly the um, composition of the book um, and the message of the book and all that sort of issues, and that of course ties back with um, with the kind of um, interests that I've had in the subject uh, in terms of the 20 years that I've been working on on the the, the wider issues that that relate to numbers and and the Pentateuch, and uh, I, I take Pentateuch together with Joshua, uh, which is again not obvious for the casual reader, but because people often look at the books of Moses, we start from Genesis and end with Deuteronomy. But I take Joshua together um, uh, with those books. Basically, coming back to the issue of how how one can make sense of the materials and why the book was written, scholarship has asked these questions, uh, particularly over the last 200 years and perhaps a bit more, sort of since about the 18th century when uh, you could consider the Pentateuchal scholarship or modern Pentateuchal scholarship uh, as having started. And again, I have not been satisfied with the answers that have been given thus far. And um, really what I wanted to do with this particular book, uh, and in that ties with my overall efforts uh, um, in the area, I wanted to find a solution, actually ultimately a solution that satisfies myself uh, rather than anything else, uh, and then once I and, and, and actually what I feel that with this book, I have actually found a solution that does satisfy uh, myself. And I think that's most important as, as an author, I, I find I'm happy with what I'm writing. And I feel like that that gives a good idea of of how this problem, as it were, or how this issue could be could be solved. And of course, then as an author, I want to share it with other people and uh, see what they might um, think about um, my solution to to these issues. And I, and in many ways, as I indicate in the book, uh, I would hope that readers would read it uh, uh, in a reflective manner. Uh, my 
solutions that I put forward are really ultimately just suggestions and hopefully they can help um, in uh, readers engaging with the issues and really forming a picture themselves. Of course, um, uh, I, I as an author would be very pleased and flattered if people would agree with what I've said. Nevertheless, that, that's, that's, that's the kind of thinking that I have when I have written it. Pekka, you have a new approach to interpreting numbers, which you refer to as colonial interpretation. Uh, sometimes you mention post-colonial interpretation. Can you explain that for us? Yes. In, in many ways, colonial in, uh, in this context uh, relates to colonialism. And um, one has uh, a variety of definitions uh, that relate to, to, to colonialism. And uh, there's quite a quite a bit of sort of discussion that has been um, um, has been there uh, around the topic. But I just going straight into one particular definition which I like. I'll just read read it here. Um, I hope I'm getting it getting it entirely right here. Uh, colonialism refers to projects and practices of control marshaled in interaction between societies. Uh, interaction or interactions between societies linked in asymmetrical relations of power and the processes of uh, social and cultural transformation resulting from those practices. So basically, two things are very important. Relationships between societies and then, on the other hand, uh, relations these, that these relations are asymmetrical in terms of power. And this is really... Uh, what sort of um, what you would say social scientific and um, and what would you say maybe post-colonial interpretation uh, um, uh, kind of looks at uh, these these two aspects in particular uh, in in the light of the definition there and post-colonial really refers to sort of I'd say to the era which sort of started from about the end of the Second World War in the 20th century and is co uh, continuing till the present. During that time, uh, due to many of the developments that took place around the, say, Second World War and already before and etc., uh, many of the colonies um, of sort of Western powers, particularly, uh, probably most notably Britain and France, uh, but others as well, for instance, Portugal, uh, those colonies became independent. And again, the colonies were societies, non-Western societies that were ruled by the Western societies. And really, the, the background to Western colonialism goes to the 1490s and Columbus's uh, expeditions uh, to Americas. Uh, Post-colonial, nevertheless, um, would relate to that time after the Second World War when people sort of uh, started to become independent from these Western colonies. And on the other hand, uh, very importantly, at the same time, there was a scholarship that arose at that time which uh, wanted to analyze um, colonialism and, um, and how it had affected uh, the world. And that's, that's, I think, quite important. So in that sense, this book that I have here stands in that tradition of post-colonial analysis, I would say. And uh, in biblical studies, we already have a fair bit of post-colonial analysis. But that has often been done from the perspective of uh, how these uh, biblical documents should be read rather than uh, seeing the biblical documents themselves as uh, products of colonialism. And in this mix, uh, I would add, and that's very vital for the for the book, uh, the concept of settler colonialism. And that is a particular mode of colonialism that has been identified by scholarship in the last 20 years, but in, in particular. Uh, settler colonialism has its own particular modes of operation, and uh, as you would say, Targets, if that's the right word, uh, in terms of what a settler colonial society um, would like to achieve, uh, whether those targets are then explicit or implicit uh, in, in settler colonial processes. And we do have 
such societies as uh, USA, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and probably, for instance, Russia as well in the modern world that can be classified as settler colonial that have been analyzed. Uh, and interestingly, even if we are saying that our era is um, post-colonial, uh, these settler colonial societies actually still um, continue, and settler colonialism continues in today's world. And one could actually indeed make a comment that uh, colonialism in itself uh, still lives on today, but perhaps in a, in a different form from uh, sort of 18th, 19th century colonialism, which was kind of uh, uh, surpassed by post-colonial era. For instance, American uh, presence in the world, having all military bases in everywhere. The battle uh, in Syria at the moment uh, uh, would relate to, um, uh, I, I suppose, some people use the word uh, neo-colonial, perhaps that, or, or to colonialism. Uh, it is not something that I have particularly analyzed in this book, but uh, uh, meaning... Uh, uh, neocolonialism. However, it's worth just mentioning here, I do believe. Uh, now, on settler colonialism itself, uh, as I've already mentioned, it is a particularly interesting new development uh, uh, in uh, studies of colonialism and particularly applicable to the uh, interpretation of the Book of Numbers and uh, Genesis Joshua as a whole. Uh, and I already mentioned that it was it has been developed fairly recently in the last 20 years or so. And uh, it's a special formation of colonialism. In settler colonialism, there is the concept of set settler, which is very important. Uh, and settlers come to stay as against other uh, type of uh, colonial personnel who generally tend to be in the colonies only temporarily. And they usually tend to return. Uh, and the other, and, and another interesting aspect of settler colonialism is that uh, settlers generally they are founders of political orders and they have a an idea of political sovereignty that travels with them or or otherwise um, arises in in the destination and they typically set up their own society or otherwise they are an extension of a society of their origin the other interesting point about, or, or a further interesting point about settler colonialism is that um, indigenous people, those who are there in the, uh, in the colonies uh, where settlers come to, they generally are made to vanish instead of, uh, as it were, exploited, uh, as you would have in, in sort of normal colonialism. Often that normal colonialism could be classified as something like franchise colonialism. It doesn't mean that those people couldn't be exploited, but ultimately the the target of settler colonies uh, and settler colonialists is to make indigenous people vanish. And uh, this vanishing can be either physical, so that people are killed or they are expelled from the area, or it can be cultural, so that the... Um, the uh, target um, peoples are made to conform to the society of the settlers. In effect, what happens is that a new society is established in place of an older one. <clears throat> and uh, this relates to a concept called structural genocide that one uh, academic of settler colonialism has um, expounded. Uh, and interestingly, it also does link with... Um, Raphael Lemkin's definition of genocide. And Raphael Lemkin uh, was uh, the founder of genocide studies around the time uh, of the Second World War. Uh, and, and he's acknowledged as, as it were, almost, what do we say? Well, he's certainly uh, acknowledged as the, the person who coined uh, the term genocide. And if one reads uh, Lemkin's work, he did basically... Um, uh, define uh, genocide in a wide sense where societies are being destroyed by another society, really, uh, roughly speaking. And that ties with, uh, with uh, settler colonialism. Now, in terms of um, acknowledgement of what genocide is in terms of wider societies, in fact, the UN definition of genocide defined uh, genocide in a little bit more restrictive way. And that more restrictive way, actually, uh, interestingly, did uh, kind of resonate with those um, countries who wanted to make those definitions. And uh, often a charge has been laid that that definition had to do with these societies, in fact, uh, uh, kind of airbrushing and uh, 
hiding what they actually had done in the past themselves, let's say in the 19th century, for example, uh, America and, and, and Britain. So there's an interesting kind of uh, overlap and interplay between genocide studies studies of, and studies of set uh, colonialism. And uh, that interestingly then reflects onto the book. And I have tried to bring in a variety of um, insights, hopefully, uh, from those areas, and I put them in in the book, and anybody who reads the book can see some of the the, the points that I'm making there. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about those in a broad sense in in this interview, uh, but but there's much more. Um, I, hopefully, I, I can whet some appetites here. So, coming back to the book of numbers, then in in uh, more specifically in 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 a number of ways. Uh, Settler colonialism and a kind of like a structural genocide or a um, programmatic desire uh, towards such uh, structural genocide is exactly what's happening in the book of Numbers as part of Genesis Joshua as a whole. And uh, what I see the book, uh, together with uh, the other books that relate to Genesis Joshua, as... uh, a document, as an ancient document that uh, legitimates um, uh, settler colonialism in its ancient form, which actually is not hugely different from uh, from modern forms, ultimately, in, in in my view. And how this happens then uh, in 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 the materials is that there's a movement from uh, creation in Genesis to restoration of that creation in in the new land of Israel and particularly in Shiloh, uh, as we can see towards the end of the book of Joshua. Interestingly, so the man is with God in the beginning, and then we do get Adam and Eve and the expulsion of man from the garden after eating the forbidden fruit. And then we see how mankind multiplies, technologies develop, and there comes a cataclysmic flood, according to the Bible, as a uh, uh, punishment of sins. Um, And then uh, mankind sort of forks out the... since the um, close of the of the of the flood, uh, uh, descending from Noah and and his family, uh, and then a variety of nations come around in, in the world, and then um, one person amongst those nations, Abraham, is being called by Yahweh, and he comes to Canaan, and um, and Yahweh promises him the land as a kind of prelude to what is going to be happening uh, later on. And then uh, Abraham becomes a great nation, and then ultimately he um, migrates to Egypt, and there, uh, well, as part of that uh, nation-making uh, process, and the Israelites become slaves, and uh, Moses is being called by Yahweh, according to the documents, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and then lead them to the promised land, and uh, get them out of slavery and then give them a new land. Just a little thing there about the land is that there are already other people in that land. And this is what really uh, pertains to settler colonialism in that um, those, those people who are already there are supposed to be eliminated according to the biblical documents. And then a new Israelite society is going to be put, uh, in, put in instead Actually, the society, in a way, is or, or the principles of the society is founded in the wilderness, and this is where the Book of Numbers actually comes in. Uh, obviously, uh, the founding process starts in the Book of Exodus, where you get the um, formation of the Tent of Meeting, where Yahweh then dwells in the midst of uh, the people of Israel, uh, which obviously signals the uh, restoration uh, of creation, where Yahweh is coming back to dwell with Israel. Uh, uh, and obviously... It, it is not yet perfect there, but it is preparation. Uh, and then uh, a number of laws are given to the Israelites for a new life in the land in a Yahvistic manner. And uh, the book of Numbers then depicts uh, how, well, Leviticus depicts some of those laws, for particularly Numbers depicts some of them as well. Plus then in the book of Numbers, the Israelite community is starting to form into a... Um, they're going to form into a community which is in a war formation in the beginning of uh, of the book. And um, that's being described in chapters 1 to 10 in preparation for the conquest. And then they are traversing the wilderness and um, eventually they end up at Moab, uh, on the plains of Moab. 
And there then uh, Moses is uh, giving his final sermon. And then the book of Joshua indicates how they actually conquer the land. And then they are seen in at the end of the book of Joshua as setting up uh, the tent of meeting where Yahweh dwells uh, at Shiloh. Now, I think that some of this is somewhat mythical, some of this story. However, the idea is that there is this trust. And uh, if one looks at settler colonial studies, uh, often there are uh, indications that settler societies particularly work exactly in this way. They kind of see that they're, uh, they have an idol which they are achieving in the new land. And that idol actually may in reality ignore all sorts of disturbing issues which are actually happening there as well which don't fit with that idol and I think that if one looks at the book of Joshua uh, you can see that uh, there is talk about an incomplete com- conquest even though uh, there's another strand which says the conquest is complete so I see the, the strand that says the conquest is complete as, a, as an idol which the settlers are having and yet they are kind of uh, at the same time Acknowledging that it's not quite as bright and beautiful as the book would otherwise like to like to indicate, and this is this is how I see it. Uh, and the book of Numbers then is a one snapshot, one epi- one set of episodes, and one set of legal materials that point towards the land, which in itself the land is a uh, central concept in uh, in in the Hexateuch, as has certainly been. Uh, uh, Acknowledged by uh, by people in uh, in the past, uh, and uh, we do know from an academic perspective that the so-called priestly materials P and H, uh, P the priestly code and H the holiness codes, which, which are fairly related and are seen to um, particularly be attested in uh, in the book of Leviticus. Uh, talk about life in the new land but there are also bits in, in the book of Numbers and then Deuteronomy as well Moses' final speech prepares the Israelites for life in the land uh, and of course there are um, questions about what are what is the relationship between the P&H materials and, and the Deuteronomic materials and I have comments to make uh, on uh, that issue as well uh, in the book of Numbers particularly as it impinges on uh, the book of Numbers but I do believe that the comments that I have in the book of Numbers give pointers towards seeing how Leviticus and uh, Exodus should be read and how Deuteronomy should be read and even Genesis uh, and obviously I have I have written a book earlier on uh, the book of Joshua so one can uh, make reference to that as well even though for Joshua I didn't have an uh, explicit set of colonial interpretation there yet I wrote it seven years ago that book so my thinking wasn't quite much uh, or wasn't quite as much developed as uh, as it is now uh, in in the trajectory that I've been uh, been in, been on. Can you offer us an example from numbers to illustrate your new interpretation? Yes. Well, um, for example, the formation of the Israelite camp and the marching order, together with the census in chapters one to ten, shows how the Israelites prepare for a settler colonial conquest. And uh, if we compare. Uh, the material in Numbers 1 to 10 with, um, uh, for instance, censuses in Mari uh, some 500 years earlier. And this has all been pointed out. Uh, censuses were usually done uh, for military purposes in, in Mari, or at, at the minimum they accompanied uh, um, military um, expeditions or military purposes. Uh, so um, I think if one sees the Israelite censuses in uh, in, in the book of Numbers, the first one of them again, at um, I think it's Numbers, yeah, it is already in, in Numbers uh, 1, and then there's a second census in Numbers uh, 26, right. uh, and interestingly, there are two of them, and that is an important part of the book of Numbers, and of course, uh, the marching, how, how the Israelite community should march uh, is clearly indicated uh, in uh, within chapters 1 to 10. And that march is to be understood as being in a military formation. And that's interesting. And that relates to a conquest, uh, at least in the narrative uh, world of the book. But at least in the narrative world of the book, the Kelly there is an, is an idea of a conquest. Um, but interestingly, something that I have put in as, as a new point uh, or as a set of new points uh, is that 
I see the camp order doing more than just that. Uh, I see the people who actually would be the audience of the book as being in the land uh, rather than people at Sinai. I mean, the narrative world is in Sinai, but actually the readership is already in the land, whenever that might be. I do have an early date uh, that I advocate, and, and there are good reasons for it. Uh, simply, I think that uh, the, the document of Genesis to Numbers is clearly programmatic, and therefore, I would be surprised if it was uh, composed at a late date in uh, ancient Israel's history, because uh, why would you need a programmatic uh, document at that stage when uh, uh, when the people are already there in the land, they have had their monarchy, and and uh, uh, and are, as, are working as functioning societies. Whereas in the early period of Israel, when Israel is actually just settling, a programmatic document would be just spot on, as it were, fitting in the uh, uh, in in the setting where the, where the people are. I mean, I, I don't mean that it couldn't have been written later, but everything uh, to me points that uh, it's most easy, simple and straightforward, as it were, to, uh, to see it as an early document when, when ancient Israel is settling there uh, during the late, um, uh, early Iron Age, late Bronze Age, uh, at the end of the late Bronze Age and, and during the early Iron Age in particular. So somewhere there between 1300 to 1000 BCE. Uh, now, in order to aid that settlement then, coming back to the to the camp order, I see that when the Book of Numbers sees the Israelite tribes as being camped in the wilderness, actually has a purpose in uh, forming a unity amongst the settling tribes. I mean, this could be a fairly loose confederation in a number of ways, and sometimes not. It, it would, might not be clear what their relationship to each other might be. But if you have a tradition which tells uh, people that uh, we actually were unity, we we were. We are a unity, and we were there in the wilderness. We were camped there. We were um, uh, there with Moses. We were there around the central sanctuary, and we were all united there. If you have that kind of thinking, that would help people to get a, um, a feeling of being part of a greater Israel. And I believe that this is one of the um, purposes of the uh, the author of the Book of Numbers, and of course Genesis Joshua as a whole. And if one thinks, for instance, of those tribes that were settling, say, in, in Galilee and in the north, uh, it would be quite difficult for them to interact with some of the tribes would be in the central area, let's say Shiloh, and, uh, and perhaps in the south as well, uh, because of the way the land lies, Ancient technologies would not uh, enable people to travel a whole lot. Perhaps stories would travel to some extent. So these kind of stories of unity could help them think that we are part of Israel and we are all descendants of Abraham uh, and, and we were all in the wilderness. And interestingly, in the Pentateuch, actually, there are very few actual traditions about, let's say, forefathers uh, that pertain to the northern tribes as uh, in, in comparison to, let's say, those from the, the central area or in the south, uh, in, in, in Judah. So putting it all together in this kind of document could help that everybody could still somehow, even if uh, some parts of, uh, of the country and, and the, the doings of the ancestors might be more emphasized, uh, you could feel, everybody could feel that, um, that they are unity. I mean, I think this is what the, uh, the authors of the, uh, the document were trying to, uh, to achieve. I've also come to see the arrangement of the camp as an ideal portrait, the first historic expression of the covenant community. There are reflexes of Israel's camp in the vision Ezekiel has of the new temple in Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, but also in the book of Revelation and in, in the vision of the new Jerusalem. The city of God there seems also to echo the arrangement of the camp around God's central dwelling place. That's right. It's a pervasive concept that, uh, that really runs through all of the biblical documents. I think that is interesting. And again, it starts from paradise, really, where Yahweh is with people, and then that is ruptured, and then there's some kind of restoration of that there uh, that is happening, uh, or at least desired, and then that is happening actually at Sinai, and then at Shiloh, and then with the new temple of David, 
then Ezekiel uh, envisions a new temple, and then that carries over uh, into the New Testament for for, for Christians and uh, into the New Jerusalem, into the concept of New Jerusalem. Yes, I do think that. And I, I feel like the, the settler colonial interpretation that I'm doing perfectly fits with, uh, with, with all this. Uh, I, I don't see there to be any uh, um, contradiction uh, with, with any of this. Obviously, uh, when we read or, or when one reads uh, these documents as Christian, uh, then there is an issue of violence which pertains to settler colonialism. And I have some thoughts on that. I can uh, I can give those in a few moments, perhaps, uh, uh, if we get there uh, as part of, of the, the discussion. How about explaining for us your view of composition in terms of the hexateuch, Genesis through the book of Joshua? Yes. Uh, well, it kind of... Um, Ties with with my uh, thinking about uh, scholarship and uh, problems that uh, scholarship has in relation to the book, and uh, um, basically uh, on pages eight to eleven uh, of the of the book, I more or less outline the main problems that current scholarship does have, and uh, actually, it, I think it is very important for people to realize that uh, the views that current scholarship ha- has does have a do, do have a history and really I have tried to have a little bit of a survey of that history as well in the commentary and and really I think that sort of three milestones as it were in that history are very significant one is the division of uh, I would say the Pentateuch and perhaps Really, Joshua as well uh, is um, the division of of this of this book into sources, which sort of happened since the 18th century, let's say, uh, and the French physician Jan Astruc, even though there would have been a bit of precursors to him as well. But uh, but in effect, and then the next stage was uh, the anchoring of the Book of Deuteronomy into the seventh century and uh, the reform of Josiah by by De Wette in Germany in early 19th century. And then the third uh, stage was the late dating of the priestly materials, which were identified as one source uh, in, in scholarship. And this late dating was done by Wellhausen. That sort of formed a framework for um, understanding uh, the, the Pentateuch. But now, obviously, there are a lot of details that uh, that relate to the scholarship, and uh, Wellhausen's work was in um, uh, in the sort of uh, 1860s, 1870s, and uh, I'm just skipping here sort of 130 years of history very quickly. But, um, but with any of the modifications, etc., um, nevertheless, uh, I think the main problems that we have at the moment with Pentateuchal scholarship are, first of all, the lack of consensus about anything. Uh, simply, even if there was a consensus, you could, of course, question it. But particularly as there is a lack of consensus about particularly sources and the division, uh, you can really ask the question of how authoritative is a theory like this. Um, then we have a very important uh, problem in that there is a discrepancy between the canonical order and the order of postulated and the postulated order of composition of the sources. In canonical order, priestly materials come sort of in the middle part of the of the Pentateuch or Genesis Joshua, whereas according to the um, critical consensus, the um, priestly materials were composed at the very late stage. So now. Why then we, in the narrative order, have the priestly materials presented about midway, and then Deuteronomy, which is supposedly earlier, the earlier document, kind of is put on top of them as, as a sort of later document that builds on the priestly materials in the narrative order. It's a clear discrepancy, and I think uh, the sort of what you call Wellhausenian scholarship has not been able to resolve this issue, and it's hardly been asked uh, until recently. And there's a beautiful German thesis by uh, by a young young scholar, Benjamin Kilcher, which has been dealing with this issue and uh, suggested uh, a very nice set of solutions to um, the order of the codes and the relationship of, of, of these codes. And I have relied on, on his insights quite a bit in, in the commentary. The A further problem is that uh, 
the Palestinian uh, uh, approaches, and in fact, this is a kind of consensus at the moment, uh, even though not 100%, but more or less, that there is an idea of a development of concepts and institutions from simple to complex. <clears throat> and uh, I think this is completely wrong. I, I would go as far as to say that I think this is completely wrong to assume that. And I do believe that one of the reasons why this thinking is there is that it fitted sort of 19th century thinking about uh, uh, progress of science, the progress of the West, and uh, the um, kind of idea that the West is now very advanced in comparison to um, the rest of the world, whether in present time or or then present time, or whether in terms of history. And... uh, if you put those Israelite documents in to, uh, under a particular spin, you can get an idea of development from simple to complex again. But is it right? This is the question that I, I am very much uh, thinking of, and I think uh, it simply isn't right. And also, one of the reasons why I think it's not right is that um, uh, we simply can see uh, from the second millennium uh, ancient Near East otherwise – that uh, societies are complex uh, and that they have complex uh, concerns and even ritual materials that are very complex uh, of exactly uh, the same level, more, well, at the, main, at the very least, more or less the same level as the sort of Israelite priestly materials, for instance, the, um, the Hittite uh, rituals, for instance, with Kisuwatna, for, for example. So, um, so really, I feel like that kind of concept is there in the minds of people and I feel like that idea of development, it fits very well with Western culture, which may still think, uh, at least in pockets today, that other people than Westerners are, are less uh, able and less intelligent uh, and, and all of that. Uh, not everybody will think that, but, but there are people still who, um, who think that way. And it fits that kind of mindset. And I do believe that, um, if one thinks of biblical studies, it's a relatively isolated um, uh, field and has been able to be in its ivory tower since the 19th century. And what it has done is that it has kept this mindset, uh, which I've just described, and it's been able to be relatively isolated from, from anything else in scholarship. And then uh, there's been an inertia that has also formed the two, and, and a 200-year tradition, a 200 years or so tradition, maybe 150 as well, uh, around there, that is still uh, very much in effect in many ways in, um, in, uh, in, in the scholarship. And it's, uh, it's something that needs to be changed. That's my view. And uh, hopefully my, my book here is uh, one little contribution towards helping to change the situation. Um, the other issue that I wanted to highlight was number four, as it were, to say, is that the um, source critical theories tend to be very complicated. And when one thinks of the document Genesis to Joshua, to my mind, one it, it presents a narrative more or less, even if it does have all the legal materials, etc., interspersed in between. And uh, one really wonders. Could such a narrative and such an entity have just been uh, um, formed by sort of haphazard and almost random processes, in a manner of speaking, as sort of Wellhausenian scholarship uh, does tend to to think? And through all sorts of complicated reductional additions, additions, etc. And I just feel like it defies sort of a, defies kind of the kind of things that, could sit down somewhere or or a couple of authors could sit down somewhere and actually create something like this and create a narrative. I don't see anywhere else really um, uh, any books or uh, literary works that would have been formed in such a haphazard manner. Okay, uh, we do know that the Gilgamesh epic, for instance, which has often been considered as a comparator, <clears throat> was formed uh, through additions and subtractions. But it seems that it first had a set of uh, initial narratives somewhere there in the uh, late third millennium. And then those were put together into an overarching story. And then only after that, you had some additional subtractions, which didn't necessarily really change the overall um, 
overall story. So I've been kind of tracing uh, the possibility that something like that could have happened uh, here with the with the Book of Numbers and Genesis Joshua. And I think the interpretation I give is broadly in line uh, with that kind of uh, of approach. I mean, I can't go into more details. Again, uh, people can refer to the commentary for for some uh, further exposition on on these issues. Uh, but anyway, I do just feel like you need to find some kind of organic way. Again, uh, another example would be the book of Jeremiah, which we know that uh, is a little bit of a haphazard uh, composition. So in that sense, that's possible, uh, I should think so, because we have the Greek text and the Hebrew text, and, and they are quite di- divergent, uh, all of this. But um, if Jeremiah or some prophetic books are more of an anthology, should we assume this for uh, Genesis Joshua and including Numbers? I think not, and I think that there is a, a simpler um, alternative. And finally, the fifth um, issue that I have as a problem is that uh, there's a clearly um, a stylistic break between Numbers and Deuteronomy. Uh, so sort of Genesis Numbers, uh, they can be understood as being a, a mix of material that have been uh, in past scholarship seen as... Uh, two narrative sources of J, Yahvist and Elohist, and then pre the priestly uh, source, and perhaps the H, the holiness source, together with the priestly source. Then we have another block, as it were, which is uh, which relates to Deuteronomy and Joshua. Uh, and those are sort of more in a Deuteronomistic style, which also applies that same style to Judges to two kings. And, and in fact, uh, because... Deuteronomy to two kings is in a similar style. Uh, that led to uh, the famous theory by Martin North, where he suggested in the 1940s that uh, they were a single work uh, produced in, in the Babylonian exile. And uh, I do generally, I feel that uh, this break hasn't been uh, sufficiently accounted for by any of the theories. And uh, this kind of leads to my sort of idea about composition. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, coming back to North, his hypothesis was very popular sort of since after the 1940s, but it has come in, uh, under questions uh, since then, uh, uh, particularly since the sort of 1980s Westerman's book on uh, on uh, the, the, the issue on Deuteronomistic history in Germany. And we, we also have to keep in mind uh, in this context that before Martin North's Deuteronomistic history uh, theory, people did think in think of things in terms of Hexateuch, Genesis to Joshua. But again, they still had a bit of a problem uh, with accounting with the break uh, between uh, Genesis to Numbers and then Deuteronomy and Joshua. After North's theory was put under questioning, um, a new set of approaches has been uh, uh, proposed in Germany over the last, say, sort of 15, 10, 15, 20 years, a uh, so-called redactional layers approach. Uh, and in effect, the idea of redactional layers approach of the redactional layers approach is that um, there is a hexateuch, but this was kind of uh, produced by people putting in, as it were, redactional layers over the course of time. And that's how it was almost like a. Um, Layers of snow falling at different times and forming the the, the whole uh, whole document uh, in a sense. Um, now, my problem with those redactional layers uh, approaches is that uh, they still go by the Wellhausenian uh, scheme of development from simple to complex, and then in another sense, they, to my mind, do not take seriously enough uh, the. Um, some kind of narrative unity uh, that uh, is there uh, from Genesis to uh, Joshua and also more or less consider it as a result of some haphazard processes, uh, even even if deterministic processes uh, for them, I, I suppose it's fair to say. But um, but it uh, it just, just to me, it again seems like it uh, treats a piece of literature as something that's coming together piecemeal without really strong overarching authorial intent, uh, intention. And sort of coming back in that uh, to um, um, the kind of entity or unity or narrative pro- progression that has been detected through uh, uh, Genesis Joshua, I sort of 
tend to think of Jacob Milgram's proposal of uh, of a kind of chiastic structure uh, through the whole work, which indicates a kind of mirroring of things through the whole. And I think that shows a sort of um, uh, or fits together with the idea of uh, of progression from uh, from paradise to the promised land, as we we've just chatted about, and in kind of in the sense of mirror images in terms of an ancient more or less unified composition. Now, I do know that many people don't quite agree with Milgram's uh, chiasm, but I think the chiasm is at least is useful at least as a heuristic device which shows that there, the, the, the composition as a whole does make sense. And again, I, as I've already mentioned, this kind of uh, progression does fit perfectly uh, with the settler colonial interpretation. So, keeping all this in mind, I feel when one takes all of the, the issues that uh, I've just outlined above, it, there's an, quite an easy and, and straightforward solution. One can think that Genesis Numbers is one block and uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua are another block here. Uh, and uh, keeping in mind also that we don't need to think that Judges uh, and uh, Samuel and Kings need to be part of the same composition, even though they do continue the story sort of in a similar uh, style. But, but we don't need to think of them as part of the composition of Genesis uh, of Genesis to to, uh, to Joshua. So, again, Genesis to Numbers is one block in terms of style and the kind of materials that have been put in, and then uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua is another block. And I feel like if you then think that actually two people were working together, one had the uh, one did Genesis to Numbers, the other one did Deuteronomy and Joshua, then you can account for the composition quite nicely. And if they work together, you can account for the unity of the composition quite nicely. Nevertheless, it doesn't take away the fact or or the idea that uh, these people did use sources. And I have a, a detailed uh, chart uh, to indicate, at least in outlines, uh, maybe paradoxical as it may sound, how the composition could have uh, resulted from the sources, how the how the authors could have. Uh, could have used those sources to, to put things together. And funnily enough, a couple of little little points uh, should be added. Uh, the death of Moses, to my mind, actually in Deuteronomy, can be seen as having been uh, produced by the first author because it's in the style of the uh, of the narratives of uh, Genesis to Numbers. And then he probably just passed it on to the other author who put it in. And then uh, then the, the second author, uh, uh, he... Uh, Deuteronomistic author. He put in Moses' speech, put in, took in the laws, and then he did Joshua as well. And for Joshua, he, he took some, uh, or rather, he was aware of some of the priestly materials and incorporated them, uh, applied to the book of Joshua. And now, an, an, another important point to, to keep in mind here is that Genesis is a little bit different. It has less priestly material, even though it does have some, particularly in um, Genesis 1 to 11. And then it has all the patriarchal narratives. And I see this uh, this part of the composition, that is the book of Genesis, as a, as a simply as an introduction, uh, as a prologue to uh, um, uh, Exodus and, and what follows. And uh, other people have... Uh, call it a prologue like John Van Seters in his prologue to history I think it was that was the name of the uh, uh, of the book where he talked about Genesis and if one thinks of for instance the the recent uh, well known book Lord of the Rings you do have the Hobbit first and then you get the Lord of the Rings and they are both by the same author but just talk about different things and and possibly go in, in, in a little bit uh, different styles as well and in terms of content matter and when, when things happened uh, obviously, we don't have to have a complete complete analogy, but I think there is sufficient analogy there to suggest this. That's how you can you can see the composition. Pekka, what would you say is the central message of Numbers? Okay, well, I think uh, Numbers again. Uh, I'm repeating this to add absurdum. I guess that's the the expression, but nevertheless, it should be seen in the context of Genesis Numbers and its settler colonial interpretation. And in the in the book and in the wider work, the presence of the Israelites in the land is legitimated, and they are encouraged to keep settling the land uh, within a Yahwistic uh, framework. Uh, but specifically, the murmuring traditions um, 
uh, uh, one special way of emphasizing uh, uh, that it's very important to be faithful to Yahweh. And obviously there is a punishment of the first generation and then only the second generation can uh, reach the land. And of course, the book of Deuteronomy, however, as well, uh, plays on, on this issue. Uh, but nevertheless, in numbers, we can see how the, the first generation doesn't want to enter the land and then they, they cannot. It's only their children who can. And, and that is a, to my mind, uh, that emphasizes um, that people who read the book should not be like the first generation that cannot enter the land. They should be like the second genera- generation who could enter the land and, uh, and they should be encouraged to do things right. The legal and ritual materials, they do link with Leviticus from a literary and conceptual perspective um, and with emphasis particularly on the, on the Levites in the Book of Numbers. Uh, and the camp order, as I've already mentioned, helps towards uh, the concept of the unity of the Israelites. Now, I thought I'd add a few comments from a reader response perspective. Um, I think in many ways, when we read those, those books, they should alert us towards reflecting on uh, how much the world and how much our, also our Christian religion, together with Judaism and perhaps Islam, how much they have been... Uh, actually shaped by colonialism and accompanying violence. And uh, the fact that the, these are sacred texts um, for these, these religions uh, is, to my mind, actually quite staggering. One way of obviously dealing with it would be just simply deny the, the violent aspects. Uh, but uh, I do think that we have to read the texts as they have come to us and try to find what the text said to the original audience. And then if we have a religious background, try to see how we can read them then as, as, as people who, who follow a, a, a particular religion. And uh, also, I do think that the, there is a political message uh, in these texts, uh, from basically from a reader-response criticism. And I think that uh, the texts also do, uh, do help us see that uh, religion and politics are generally intertwined, perhaps less. Like in our modern sort of enlightenment uh, or post-enlightenment societies. But nevertheless, they are still still pertinent. I think we we can read against the grain, as it were, so as to help uh, the world become more just and and fair. And I don't think we should read them as, as legitimating documents for modern colonialism and violence. But then as a Christian... Perhaps in a sort of, uh, if one goes to modern theology, sort of in a Schleiermacherian sense, perhaps the documents or the texts from the sort of mosaic period, they demonstrate a limited amount of God consciousness, if you could, uh, could use that word, that then increases in the, in the New Testament and uh, whichever way one then thinks of uh, uh, the Galilean carpenter Jesus. And uh, on the other hand, there is, of course, a possibility of a completely secular reading where we just think that religion was part of the ancient world and it could was used for legitimating violence and uh, simply as part of world history uh, from a particular time where these documents uh, came about and, and the times that they portray. That's for people to try and think of how they, um, how they want to read. Uh, and I think that's really for the readers to decide. But those are just my thoughts. Some of these thoughts are not in the book, actually, but I thought I'd just just make them. I've been reflecting on things uh, also after the book was published. Before we let you go, Pekka, can you tell us about any other projects you're working on? Okay. Uh, I'm working currently on a monograph on migration and colonialism in late second millennium Levant and its environs. And and one part of the project uh, for me is to see how ancient Israel is part of the wider developments uh, in the ancient world and the ancient Near East at the time. And the other societies include the Arameans, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Hittite, Near Hittites, and the Egyptians. Uh, but otherwise, my interest is on the whole in world history, because I do believe these documents and, and all these other things that I'm just, just mentioning there are part of world history and have a, um, uh, a we have a reason to uh, study them just simply to to know about world history and how the world we uh, are living now in uh, has been shaped by developments in the past 
but uh, with uh, particularly the ancient Israelite documents, since they have been uh, passed uh, through history uh, when the rest of the remains, as it were, from the ancient Near East were buried under under ruins for millennia. They have a special place in, in world history, obviously feeding into uh, world uh, world religions as well. Some of two two or three of uh, world today's world's main uh, main religions. But uh, again, the ancient Near East has been discovered, and I think uh, there's an interplay, as it were, if that's the right way to express, between these two streams. And I think it's fascinating, and uh, that's what I what I hope to do for my next project. I also do st- uh, do some work on the study of ritual and other sociological and anthropological approaches to biblical interpretation and study of the wi- wider ancient Near East. That all sounds great, and all the best to you on those labors. Thank you, Pekka, for spending time with us today. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to Dr. Pekka Pitkanen talk about his recent book, A Commentary on the Book of Numbers, published by Rutledge in 2017. You'll find a link to it on our website. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.